You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by the Breeders' Cup. Good morning, welcome to the show. It's Friday, January the 27th. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. Coming to you from Florida as dawn rises here on the eve of the Pegasus World Cup 2023. Yesterday, I had the good fortune to head up to Palm Meadows Training Centre and catch up with a, a wonderful story that could have some really interesting repercussions for Royal Ascot and beyond, more of which in a, a little while. Big industry stories. Yesterday, Paul Scully, the gambling minister, addressed the Betting and Gaming Council's annual general meeting and he made some comments about affordability that raised more than a few eyebrows. Analysis of that with Neil Channing a little bit later in the programme. We'll also be talking to Alan Del Monte, the chief executive of the Horse Race Betting Levy Board. The Levy Board, for the first time, have released a three-year business plan with 26 strategic tasks included. I'll be speaking to him about that. Good news is coming in as regards tomorrow, Saturday's fixture at Cheltenham that we've been previewing so extensively on the podcast during the course of the week. Uh, the inspection's been brought forward today. The covers will go down tonight. They've abandoned contingency plans for Sunday, and it looks as though unless something extraordinary and untoward happens, they'll be good to go ahead tomorrow subject to passing an inspection that's now just being described as precautionary. But as I welcome Jane Mangan in, who I'm sure welcomes that news, there's only one place to start. Yes, I was at the Eclipse Awards last night, the most celebrated awards ceremony in American horse racing, the most important one for sure. And for all, Flightline will take the headlines here as the horse of the year, the least surprising victory of all time, the one that'll grab the headlines back home is that the Shark did it. Yes, Shark Hanlon and Hewick took champion steeplechaser. He was visibly moved. Jane, what a what a great story it is. I think it might make national news this evening, uh, the fact that the name The Shark is getting uh, ahead of his own name, John. That's how well known he's becoming now. Simply across the Atlantic, The Shark has uh, taken home one of the biggest prizes in racing. And Hewitt, the 800 euro purchase, the horse that's been a rags to rich story and it is continuing to soar the the, uh, Galway Plate winner and Cheltenham Gold Cup hope. It was just a real feel-good story, and he was brought to tears. What a man, what a story, and it continues to get better. And after the ceremony, I got the uh, opportunity to catch up with him. This is what he had to say. Unreal. I, I, I never dreamt when I coming over here that we had a chance. And when they called my name, I couldn't believe it. It's just, just something unreal. So it was, it's great for English race and Irish race and that we got it over here, and maybe it might entice more English Irish people to come over and have a go ahead and you you were quite choked up on the stage there I was you know over the year we're having a great year everything went well and um, my young lad Jack and Jack the Ramhead and and uh, Paddy are good friends and before I went up on the stage I just it came to my head and I couldn't get over it but listen, it's great we've done it, and it's great for Irish racing and English racing that we did do it. So my advice to everyone in Ireland and England is come, it can be done. 
when you meet the people here when you come over here it's different class and we're all entitled to be here and after this year everyone knows that we're entitled to be here I won it anyone can win it so be here lads have the fun have the crack and it's a brilliant brilliant night today I bought them for 800 quid for spilling rain I'm over here and it's 25 degrees and I had a no one knows what's going to happen. It's for everyone, lads. Any owner, you can be a big owner, a small owner, and a hello anything. It can happen. So be in. Shark handling, winning at last night's Eclipse Awards. Now, I said there was positive news from Cheltenham. Jane, uh, it looks as though this meeting's going to go ahead. I asked David Yates yesterday, quite simply, who is the horse that you are most looking forward to seeing? And what is the question you are most looking forward to being answered tomorrow? How would you answer those questions? The answer, I actually can, I, I would concur with David, Noble Yates versus Protectorat. I want to know if either of those are genuine Gold Cup prospects. I do prote- think Protectorat is. I want to find out if, if Noble Yates has continued his improvement, which I, I think that'll be a very closely run affair. And I'm very enthralled to see who comes out on top there. But of course, Clar- the Clarence House is the race for me and and Ergamine's probably the best horse on show. So him versus Ed- Edward Stone, throw in the pace angle with editor Dejit, um, that that's fascinating and and you've got the Cleve Hurdle as well at Paisley Park and a French Raider in there that most people don't know much about in Gold Tweet Gabriel Leanders knows what he's doing and he's sending that over for the Cleve Hurdle there's a lot to look forward to when it comes to Cheltenham and uh, God hope it goes ahead Given what we know now about horses that um, that he's beaten is tomorrow in your opinion Enegumen's toughest test to date? No, it's not, because his toughest t- t- test to date was last year in the Clarence House. I don't think this is as good a race. Um, I, I would be disappointed if he got beaten, with all due respect to the Arkle winner. So you th- you're prepared to accept the view that, that Shishkin last year, when he beat Enegumen, was of a significantly higher standard than anything he, he faces tomorrow? Shishkin at the time was a completely different animal to the Shishkin we have today. I believe that. So you're confidently expecting victory from Enegumen. I I think Edward Stone might beat him, you know. Yeah, that's the beauty of racing. We love a good debate. I, I think we have yet to... I think he's an improving horse. I was expecting a lot of improvement from the Hilly Way, uh, just how he looked in the ring. And uh, let's see if we if we get that. I'm hoping to see a better Ahoy Senor in the Cotswold chase. And I hope that that fire can be relit when he gets back to Cheltenham and, and he puts his best foot forward. There's a juvenile hurdle in there that is very interesting. There's actually quite a good juvenile hurdle today um, at Huntington, but, um, or sorry, Doncaster. It's Like you said, it's a deep card. Rob James on Delta work reading into that. Do they, do they feel they need to claim seven pounds off him in that, in that, uh, cross-country chase John Joe Neal rides the former Grand National hero Manila Times his first run over the banks um, there's an awful lot to look like that that is a very good card nine races that doesn't attract a crowd don't know what will uh, talking of attracting crowds a very good crowd yesterday at Goran Park were you there? I was indeed on duty for uh, RTE Racing and I think almost 11,000. I'm waiting on the official figure from Eddie Scali at Goran Park, but I think around 11,000 people came to Goran Park on Thursday midweek um, for what was a good jumping card. It was 
the, the Thiasis Chase has a, a has a great deal of prestige around it, and to win it is is a huge deal for for anyone. But Willie Mullins to bring a horse back after over a thousand days on the sidelines, he ran okay in the Paddy Power at Christmas. Uh, he is reported as saying he worked dismally during the week, and uh, Paul Townend gives the outside to no one. And he, he drops him on the line with a huge weight. So that was a massive training performance and owning performance from the Masterson family to persevere with the horse that was just beaten in the Cheltenham bumper by relegate. That's quite a few years ago now. Um, He 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 put up a massive performance to beat Dunboyne in the big race. Tahupo absolutely throws his hat into the stairs hurdle bracket now because the Galmoy hurdle may have fell apart. I don't think we'll take this form literally because Longhouse Poets stopped. Somerville Boy hasn't won for quite a long time and he finished second. But Tihupo was very impressive in what he did, stepping up to three miles for the first time. And I think he proved that he really does stay. So now with Home by the Lee, let's see what Paisley Park can do tomorrow. Huge question marks about Classical Dream and Flooring Porter's participation. I think Tihupo really threw his hat into the ring. And then the big question mark was what Sir Gerhard would do in his beginner's chase. Well, it was a three-runner race. It was a very, what was meant to be a very straightforward affair. But his jumping left plenty to be desired. He banked the the last fence with a round to go, came up too early, landed down on top of it, was very lucky to stay standing. Then he got very careful, maybe because he lost a bit of confidence. He went into the board at a number of his fences down the back straight, jumping very conservatively. Um, and when he had largely debut beaten at the top of the hill, Paul Townend said post-race he wanted to teach his horse something. So he sent him for the last three fences and when he did, he really had to reach. He's not a horse, doesn't look like he's an abundance of scope. I I was wondering to see if he wanted to get another run into Sir Gerhard before the festival, given how his jumping left plenty to be desired. And I got the vibe that he actually did want to get another run into him, but there probably wasn't going to be a suitable race. So I'd expect Sir Gerhard will be schooling at a racetrack between now and Cheltenham. He mentioned the National Hunt Chase, but of course he's not even qualified for that race because you'd have to have finished in the first four in a in a chase over two miles seven plus. Um, and he hasn't fitted that bill. So it's the Turners or the Brown Advisory, but there'd be plenty of schooling to be done between now and then. All right, Jane, betting and gaming council's annual general meeting yesterday. The guest speaker, keynote speaker was Paul Scully, the minister responsible for gambling, and some some interesting uh, newsworthy headlines out of this what did you make of it i have read through paul scully's quotes and i did think there was a number of significant statements in there he said the first thing is the affordability checks words are probably the wrong title for the protections that they are envisaging he said it is not the role of government nor it is the role nor is it the role of the gambling commission to tell people how much of their salary is allowed to be spent on gambling he also suggested that the white paper won't be where it ends. Um, he told the audience that that will not be the final word on gambling reform when it is eventually published, whenever that is, and that it will be followed by consultations led by both the Department of the Department for Digital Culture and Media uh, and, of course, the Gambling Commission as well. So they were the number of takeaways I had from his statement, but... Nick, there's a lot to be taken from that. We've been using the words affordability checks for a very long time. And this man has basically told us we're saying the wrong thing. 
Right, well, let's bring in my old friend Neil Channing, a professional punter and gambling industry analyst, is with me now. Neil, Paul Scully's comments yesterday, what did he mean, do you think? He's probably struggling with it himself. He's now realising why everyone else has struggled with this, because he's a libertarian at heart. He doesn't really want uh, the government meddling in what people spend their money on. Uh, but he's he's also realising that there's no votes in supporting the gambling industry and people are, you know, no, nobody wants to say, and of course I don't want to either, nobody wants to say they're not in favour of, uh, you know, helping out problem gamblers and stopping people from being uh, getting involved in gambling harm. Um, I think he thinks there's a, there's a happy world where we can do some kind of background checks quietly without people having to send in lots of paperwork. But those checks don't really exist, and he may be living in a slight fantasy world. Uh, I mean, the the article in the Racing Post um, says that he's basically... Well, I mean, it kind of says that he's telling the Gambling Commission you shouldn't be doing these affordability checks. Uh, I spoke to somebody, a leading operator, about a year ago, and I said, if when the white paper finally turns up, there are no affordability checks, it's not a thing in there, Will you just drop everything that you're doing currently, change all your current procedures, get rid of all the compliance staff that are dealing with all this stuff, and and welcome back all your VIP customers? And he said, no, you know, the horse has bolted now. We we can't really do that. Um, Maybe we'll look at, you know, how we do it. We might we might decide to do it for certain cohorts of customers and not for everybody but again everyone just wants clarity don't they i mean we we had a situation where uh, a casino firm got fined uh this week a huge amount uh, it was i think it was their fourth offense and um basically the main thing they did wrong was they didn't follow their own procedure to contact every single person that had deposited and lost more than 10 thousand in a year for for an affordability check but that was a that was a policy that they brought in the gambling commission didn't set that limit they if they'd have set the limit at 50 grand they'd have probably avoided a fine because there wouldn't have been too many of those people it, it, the whole thing's a total mess it's all ridiculous but i think i think perhaps paul scully's speech uh while being a good sign for the horse racing industry because the horse racing industry definitely doesn't want affordability checks uh, or certainly doesn't want them to be draconian um i don't think we can we can say it's all over we've won the battle i want to draw your attention if you haven't seen it already to an article written by matt zarb cousin on navara media um the headline is gambling firms prey on the working class why is Labour taking their money? And it goes on to, to then detail a number of senior figures within the the current Labour Party, who we believe to be on the cusp of power, who um, have links with the with the gambling industry. And he's inviting you to to draw some some negative inferences there. Um, are there again? Are there positives for the horse racing industry here? Do you think? Well, I love Navarra Media, and I love Matt Zob Cousins, uh, even though he would be on the other side of this debate to me. Um, I think this is a slightly messy and complicated one. There are two ways that these people uh, who are giving money to Labour have been given. giving. So people like Peter Coates, for example, from Bet365, he's given six-figure sums, and that goes to the Labour Party generally, nationally to the Labour Party, uh, and, and, and that carries a, a lot more influence. 
Um, other people, I think Richard Flint is one, a former um, uh, boss of Flutter. His local MP is Rachel Reeves, the shadow chancellor. I think he's given her 10 grand, maybe 25 another time. I mean, that would be like me fishing a tenner out from the back of the sofa. I think he's given that to her because he, you know, he thinks she's a good local MP and, and she's using it to... Um, uh, fund her office or, or something like that I, I, I mean, but of course the reason that people give money to political parties generally to get influence and as Labour uh, are one to three to get most seats in the next general election they're, they're going to get more money from people and I, I don't know I mean I, I, I think the amounts of money uh, coming into the individual MPs are quite small and unlikely to cause a huge influence uh, although I do think you know the Coates family have been quite big sort of new Labour fans they gave money to the Labour Party under Blair and they're back giving it under Starmer um, I think that says a bit more about what their political views are than necessarily what they want to do to gambling but you could argue that they gave a load of money in 2005 and they got a, a 2005 gambling act that was very favourable to bet 365 why not repeat that now of course, the knock-on effect of what we've just been talking about, um, the affordability checks, is the, the hole that it would potentially blow or has blown in, in racing's finances. I'll come on to that in, in a little while with Alan Del Monte, who's the chief executive of the Horse Race Betting Levy Board, because the Levy Board yesterday, and for the first time, announced a, a three-year business plan um, with, with 26 individual um uh, strategic tasks that it has set for itself uh, over uh, over the next three years. Al- Alan, first of all, why have you decided to publish this? Well, it was timely for us to do it because we haven't uh, had one uh, like this. Certainly, nothing of this uh, of this length and uh, complexity. Uh, it's something that we had been thinking about doing once our. Uh, normal abolition uh, occurred in 2019 and then COVID got in the way in 2020. Uh, we wanted to have something down in one place that encapsulates uh, in a readable way the things that we are trying to do with the levy money that comes in. Uh, it sets out some specific targets that we've set ourselves in terms of the projects that we uh, are going to do, a mixture of internal uh, things like improving the, uh, the the interface for levy returns uh, and some other uh, I- internal uh, parts of our work and then various external pieces of work around how we spend our money, whether that's prize money, regulation integrity and all of the other uh, areas of the of the business down in uh, down in a way that, that people can see what we're doing in a very transparent and clear way. The clear concern here is the the dip in the in the levy yield. I mean, you'll have been paying as close attention to, as anybody to the conversations that, that the sport and the gambling industry has been having over the last year or eighteen months. To what extent can you now see evidence of that in your in your figures in your data? Well, we are seeing on the on the information that we have a decline in uh, levy this year, both in turnover, the amount bet, and in gross win, the amount that bookmakers are making. One of the real difficulties for us here is that all that you can do is look at the total figures and try to uh, estimate what the factors are that are causing that to happen. And there are really three interrelated areas. There's 
the general economic situation, which, uh, as has been the case in the past, you would expect would have some impact on customer spend. You've had the issues around competitiveness and the attractiveness of the race program, and we've had some well publicised issues around small fields, uh, particularly in the summer. Uh, and you have the question of affordability uh, and all of those uh, issues that have been highlighted in the, the media and elsewhere. Uh, so we are seeing a reduction uh, in levy. It, the last couple of months have been better, as in the falls haven't been as great as the preceding months, but we are still seeing a likely uh, decline in, in levy to the end of the year. We've got uh, two and a bit months to go of the year, and obviously Cheltenham Festival, which can cause such a significant swing, is still to come right at the end of our own financial year, which is at, at the end of March. So we will have to take that all into account when we come to think about what we can spend in the, the later part of 2023 and into 2024. And I suppose the key question there is you've got 26 strategic tasks over three years, planned projects for the next three years. Um, which one of those is thrown out of uh, out of the balloon first? What areas go first if you're going to need to cut your cloth according to, to, a, to a declining yield? Well, we'd be hopeful that none of them would be would be thrown overboard. Uh, there's a question around uh, how much money might be available to achieve some of them, but a, a number of them are uh, reviews around how we spend the prize money, uh, how effectively the regulation and integrity funding is that we provide uh, questions around developing uh, an equine infectious disease strategy, uh, a people strategy for the recruitment and retention of in particular stable staff in the sport. These things can all happen with a slightly reduced budget, mm. but um, it, it's how much money you then have to spend on some of the recommendations uh, arising from those projects. Obviously, you do have to have in mind how much money you're going to have available at the end of the uh, at the end of the the rainbow. Not just uh, worrying about that term when you get towards the end. I suspect the two uh, planned projects that will resonate with people most clearly, and, and five and six, targeted prize money and the revised fixture incentive fund, particularly at the moment. Let's let's talk about prize money first of all. Um, when you say targeted prize money, um, how can the levy board be more agile in getting prize money to the right fixtures? Indeed, what are the right fixtures? Well, one of the big questions that racing will be dealing with in its strategic review is how you prioritise which parts of the race programme. The, the way that the Levy Board operates at the moment is that we provide a, uh, a an amount to each race that is run, and that amount depends to a large degree on how much a race course itself puts into the race. But we don't have uh, a very... Um, uh, an overarching intention to focus our money on, for example, uh, the quality end of the programme or the international end or group races at the expense of the middle and, and lower. So we will be working with uh, BHA and with the rest of racing to try to work out where the real priorities are for the sport as part of this, this wider review. And the intention will be that we will be able to say with more clarity and confidence where the levy money is most effectively utilised to get the biggest possible return for racing. That's not necessarily just about return in uh, in terms of betting yield, but for the overall long-term health of the sport. 
And the revised fixture incentive fund interests me, particularly at the, at the moment we've been talking about moving fixtures around. I'm sure you're very pleased that tomorrow's Clarence House has at least got a, a respectably sized field. Yeah, we have, we have done quite a bit of work on, on the fixture incentive fund already uh, by, again, targeting where that money is most uh, effective. So we have begun to focus much more on, for example, uh, jump fixtures in midweek at the early part of the year rather than the historic broad brush approach which is which funded a lot more fixtures for less money and this theme of targeting money where it is most effective which we've mentioned on prize money we we will look to do across the piece with our fixture related expenditure and on the uh, the current house transfer yeah we are very pleased to have more runners we have twice the size fields uh, at Cheltenham that we would have had at Ascot, so we didn't know that was going to, to happen and we took a view about transferring it uh, in expectation that there may only be the, the big two and one other. Um, it, that's a good example of where you, you can't necessarily just look at this in terms of pounds and pence of money going out versus money coming in. There's a wider uh, public interest and good of uh, the sport about getting these uh, big best horses on uh, against each other at key points of the year. So we're, we're pleased to have uh, helped to, to get it on and, and particularly pleased to have got um, the, the protagonists and some more uh, turning up at Cheltenham. Alan Dalmonte, Chief Executive of the Horse Race Betting Levy Board. There is something for everyone somewhere in the world during the course of this weekend, whether it's at Cheltenham or here at Gulfstream Park in Florida. Our international coverage this week is supported by Qatar Racing, who've been racing champions across the globe since 2012. Roaring Lion and Cameco, some of the celebrated names in Europe. And Caravel, the Breeders' Cup turf sprint winner, who was amongst the finalists at last night's Eclipse Awards. And Qatar Racing lending their support for the first time to the Pegasus World Cup turf, enhancing their sponsorship portfolio and their presence here in the United States. But you could argue that the most significant race anywhere on the planet this weekend is taking place at Sha Tin. It is the 2023 running of the Stewards' Cup in Hong Kong and brings together three genuine champions. Zach Purton, multiple champion jockey, spoke to me on this podcast last week. He felt it's the best race that he'd ridden in in Hong Kong. And uh, Jim McGrath, our Hong Kong correspondent, joins me now. I I don't think that's any exaggeration, is it, Jim? No, not at all, Nick. I mean, if you look at the facts, uh, three of the horses that are in this seven-runner field are in the top ten rated horses in the Longines' best racehorse uh, standing. So it is significant, uh, and it's very unusual that the all three should be clashing uh, because, um, you know, usually they, they duck and dive a bit. They can do that. And also, uh, each of the three has a, a probably a, a different speciality. You've got... Um, California Spangle, who could drop back to a seven. This is a mile. Uh, you've got Romantic Warrior, who's a, a derby winner and will probably step up to a mile and a quarter. That's his optimum trip. And, of course, you've got the, the outstanding champion, uh, Golden 60, who was beaten last start by uh, California Spangle. But just the same, he's he's got a remarkable record, 23 wins on the board from 27 starts. So it is an absolute cracker. How do you see it playing out tactically? A lot's been a lot's been made of how these horses are going to be ridden and to whose advantage it's going to play. 
Well, there's uh, a very interesting wild card in this race, and that is uh, a horse called Waikuku, uh, who's trained by John Size and uh, has won two editions of this race previously. Uh, he wouldn't be anywhere near on uh, on what we've seen recently. He wouldn't be any, anywhere near the top three. Uh, he'd be at least uh, two or three lengths behind them. However, John Size has pulled a master stroke by engaging Ryan Moore to ride uh, Waikuku, and he starts from uh, gate number five in a, a seven-runner field. You're very right in saying that this is, could be tactical, uh, and it's significant that Golden 60 has drawn a stall number two, um, which uh, in, with uh, on his outside California Spangle in three and Romantic Warrior in four, and then you've got Waikuku in five. Now, if you think about it, uh, what's likely to happen is that California Spangle will go forward and lead, as he usually does for, for Zach Purton. Uh, and then you can see Romantic Warrior just moving up on the outside and pocketing Vincent Ho on Golden 60. Uh, this is all in theory, of course. Now, the wild card, as I say, is Waikuku, Ryan Moore, now, Moore, as we know, is an absolute master and size is an absolute master, knowing these horses and knowing how races are run. I expect it not to be as straightforward as many of those doing speed maps are predicting. I think there could be just a little bit of a shake-up midfield. All right, let's let's talk about the, the clash of the, the, the generations as well. Which of these horses do you think is, is open to the most improvement that can take the biggest step forward? Presumably, we, we think we know how good Golden 60 is now. Well, we do, yeah. We think we, we've uh, reached a level where we know he's, uh, he's as good as he is and he's, uh, he's outstanding. Um, and, and, and I don't think it's a time to write him off, even though he was beaten by California Spangle last start. This horse has been beaten only four times in 27 starts. Three times it was jockey error, in my opinion. Uh, that's open to debate, but I think Vincent Ho uh, was uh, just found wanting on, on, uh, on those occasions. Uh, and I, I thought he left him too much to do last time. Uh, now, drawn two and pocketed, uh, which he's likely to be, it's going to be tricky. It is really tricky uh, because these guys are playing for keeps. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and, um, yeah, it's going to be uh, interesting. Are you asking me about the one who's open to the most improvement? It has to be number two, uh, Romantic Warrior. Uh, he's a derby winner. Uh, he's only been beaten once, and that was when he was trapped wide and uh, was given a terrible, terribly hard run. Um, uh, that was in a, a series of the uh, one leg of the uh, four-year-old series last season. Uh, Romantic Warrior definitely on the up, uh, and uh, he's a he's a horse who's is uh, beautifully bred. He's by acclamation, and he's out of a, one of the families uh, that Godolphin uh, nurtured and developed. Uh, and uh, yeah, he's got a real lot of upside, and I don't think we've reached the bottom of him yet. So he's the one who's the likely improver. And he's the one, I think, uh, who may come out on top. So while in, in Florida this week in preparation for the, for the Pegasus, I took the opportunity to come about an hour north of Gulfstream Park and about eight miles inland from Palm Beach to Palm Meadows Training Center, which is a, a huge facility housing an enormous uh, amount of the horse population here in South Florida and many of the horses that run at Gulfstream Park and I've I've chanced upon a man that you may remember from Royal Ascot a few years ago uh, owner of Bucero Harlan Malta 
Bukero ran an excellent race behind some quite good horses in the King's Stand, Blue Point and Batash. And now, in partnership with Ascot Racecourse, Royal Ascot itself and Great British Racing International, we on this podcast are going to follow the journey of trying to get Bukero's progeny back to the UK and back to race at Royal Ascot one day. Harlan Malta, it sounds so straightforward. You like a challenge, don't you? <laughs> yes, um, you know, taking a taking a horse from Indiana uh, over to Newmarket and then uh, challenging the best in the world was uh, just the first step. So um, I'm, I'm really looking forward. I've 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 really gotten uh, very interested in in the whole Royal Ascot meet and, and a lot of English racing. I was over at Tattersalls, and that's a little bit. I'd been talking about bringing a Bucaro over uh, for a couple of years now in my visits to Royal Ascot. Um, Wanted to wait until the Bucero started running and, and make sure uh, he, was, he was bringing his uh, talent through to his progeny. It's just worth expressing just what a labor of love this has been for you. Because as you say, Indiana bred, so people are prejudiced against you to start with. Then you, you make him a, a grade one performer uh, on two continents. And then it's like, well, who wants to stand a stallion? Uh, like him here in the United States and he's had to do it the hard way and he's done it that's uh, you know the underdog story is kind of um, something uh, he's embraced uh, you know his whole career Um, being an Indiana bred and I think actually did a a large piece in the um, in the press in England when he was at Ascot about his dam who had been saved from uh, a kill pen basically almost and uh, he's he's been an underdog his whole career Um, for me he had all the elements of what I would want in a stallion. And I'm a stubborn guy. So I said, you know, I think he's got to get a chance. So we, we work really, really hard. Um, we're in Florida, where he was received very, very well, you know, he's going to have to work his way to Kentucky. But um, he got bred to 416 mares. And um, we're off to a great start. He has 16 winners from his first 31 runners. So he's doing his job. And uh, I kind of want to just keep giving him that chance. That's my job. So, so how did his book get big how, how did you market him and and why did he go down well we got very lucky in the sense that his sire cantheros uh was really a very strong stallion uh in florida and there were a lot of people who had had success with his his offspring and uh so that gave us at least a a, a little hook um for people um i will say this when i called the stallion farm about standing him in florida um i'm not certain they knew who bukera was uh, so it has, that, it has been a battle from that point all the way up. Uh, once you see the horse in person, and that really is it, Florida breeders are very, very hands-on. Uh, when you see him in person, it's not hard to picture what your baby's going to look like, and he's done a fantastic job stamping him. And uh, he's just been very well-received. The babies are, are, are athletic and uh, well-balanced, and you know now they're doing it on the track, so it's going to be interesting to see. But getting horses by Bucero back to Royal Ascot, why does this mean so much to you? Well, you know, maybe it's a generational thing, but, you know, I, I grew up with the Olympics being something that, you know, everyone really, really looked forward to, you know, world competition. And to me, there's nothing more sporting than uh, trying to go and, and, and kind of prove your medal against the best. And, you know, that's really what intrigued me about Royal Ascot. Um, a lot of people said, oh, you know, you have plenty of races in the States. You know, to me, to have that opportunity to go over there and, and then for him to do it. Um, it's the same thing. I think that, you know, Bucaro, I think, has surprised a lot of people in the States, and I think he'll continue to. He's a very, very large second crop. And I think he fits, the, I think he fits um, in the U.K. And I think, you know, if I can get something that's the right horse, it's super tough competition, obviously, but if I can get the right horse over there, it will be really special for him to kind of make a mark. 
we're down here at, at Palm Meadows. It's an amazing training facility. You've got a filly in training with, with Mark Cassie, who we've been looking at this morning, that in, in a brilliant bit of symmetry, you actually purchased from the, the stable of Her Late Majesty the Queen. It's, and it even goes even deeper than that, which is interesting. I, I did not have any intention of specifically buying that horse. Um, and I actually had gone over to Tattersalls to just buy a straight broodmare. Uh, to breed to Bucero to kind of start me on this path. I thought if I'm going to bring a horse over to the UK, I might as well have uh, on the damn side, a, you know, a strong UK pedigree. Uh, and then this one we came about and we just, we loved her. And, you know, to, to, to have my first exposure be at her meet, to then be able to purchase her horse. And uh, even deeper, if you watch her second to last race, um, Improvise actually was narrowly beat by a nose on, on unfortunately, the day the, the queen passed and uh, was almost, uh, I spoke to Michael Bell, who said, you know, it's a, it was a shame because that would have been her last winner. But um, it's just the, the, the it's amazing how uh, just coincidentally, but hopefully it's kind of started us on the same kind of path uh, of fortune. I would sort of say it's borderline impossible that by Bucero out of improvise turns up at Royal Ascot. But knowing you, it's probably highly probable. <laughs> Things like this have happened in my life. Do you want to put life. some odds on it? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure you can find in, uh, the book, some bookmakers in uh, the UK well, that will do it probably today. But uh, it, look, it's, I would have never thought when I bought a $43,000 two-year-old out of a non-stakes mare um, that I would have been sitting in Royal Ascot, you know, running against those types of horses. He'd run so well that we'd have this many babies and, uh, and, and have this chance. So at this point, I have, I, I said this the other day, I haven't, every metric I've set for Bukero to get to, he's exceeded. So we'll wait, we'll wait until he fails me. Well, it's, it's going to be fascinating joining you on this, on this journey and, and we'll be following the progress, as I said, in conjunction with Royal Ascot and GBRI on the, on the podcast for the moment, Harlan, thanks for talking to me. Absolutely. It's great seeing you again, Nick, and uh, look forward to doing it with you. Well, my thanks to Harlan. What a story that is. We'll be following that during the course of the year. Before I get a tip from you, Jane Mangan, there's a, a couple of horses that will be appearing over the next few days who may yet um, add further to, to this National Hunt season, one of whom is Bob Ollinger coming back to two miles. Um, what do you think he can do over the minimum trip? Not a surprise. He did not stay. He did not get involved in the Christmas hurdle over three miles at Leopardstown. And I think we're playing clutching at straws. And this is a suitable race for him. It's not a terribly hot race, but he he's still not going to go off favoured for it because the limestone lad hurdle it features Echoes in Rain, a very good filly of Willie Mullins's and Durasso for J.P. McManus and Joseph O'Brien. He's back to two miles, and I think they're running out of options. So I'll be watching him very closely at Nace on Sunday. And on Monday, a mare who, while she's not Hewick, would certainly fall into the rags-to-riches story as well, the inexpensively bought Princess Zoe, the jukebox jury mare who's imported from Germany with a view to a hurdles career. Of course, she ended up winning the Prix de Cadron on the flat and being a very effective stare uh, being placed in the Ascot Gold Cup as well. We've heard all the, t- the tales about her owner, Paddy Kyo, and her trainer, Tony Mullins. Well, Tony has schooled her over hurdles at uh, the Curra during the week with his son, Danny, on board, and he's happy to give her the green light to run in the Mayor's Maiden Hurdle this coming Monday at Punchestown. She'll be, I think I, I would be right in saying that Tony said the only way she would be running over hurdles is if she was schooling well enough and going well enough to be able to run 
at some of the best hurdle races uh, in the season in the spring. So that, I would imagine, is the Mayor's Novice Hurdle at Cheltenham. If she is up to that scratch, she should be certainly winning the 157 at Punchestown on Monday. Excellent. And where is your money going today or, or, or over the weekend? I'm interested to see what Arclyde can do in the um, in the listed Phillies juvenile event at Doncaster at 2.40 today for Nikki Henderson and Nico de Bonville. She's looked very good at her her two starts over hurdles to date at Kempton and of course in distance as well. So Arclyde for me in the 2.40 to see if she can take up that triumph hurdle entry and live up to that standard. Jane, thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening. I'll be back to do it all over again on Monday. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.